Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Hello, this is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Jeremy Larson, the Review's Director, and today we are going to talk about the rich and sad and complicated text that is Lana Del Rey and her ninth album, Did You Know That There's a Tunnel Under Ocean Boulevard? Joining me to untangle this fishtail braid of beauty, grief, and love songs about Margaret Qualley is Pitchfork contributing writer Olivia Horn, who hasn't done a cartwheel since she was nine, and Pitchfork senior editor Anna Gatza, who just called to say, you're fucking up big time. Anna, Olivia, how are you feeling today? Feeling good. Hello. Hi. Happy to be here. Are you feeling like you're ready to talk about an album that is mostly about death and sadness? And how you're not sure if you can get off pills to have a child? Doesn't this sound like a great pop album? I am a perennial sad girl, so I'm ready. I love Lana Del Rey. It is a cliche when you read a press release that describes an artist's album as her most personal album yet. And yet for Lana Del Rey, I think that's what we're faced with here. Songs that deal specifically with her mother, her sister, her uncle, a guy she knew in high school... It's all kind of cast under this large shadow of death and um, melancholy and sort of like personal introspection that hangs over this album. So to retrace the path of Lana Del Rey from her debut album to here would be like, I don't know, trying to summarize what happens in Middlemarch. So Born to Die, that's really kind of when Lana met the press and the press was none too kind to Lana. What do you guys remember from that era I mean, Born to Die came out in 2012. I was not a music critic at that time. I was just like an average nobody on Tumblr where, of course, you saw Lana Del Rey all the time. You know, she had like an image that really worked for that medium and, you know, the sad girl kind of appeal. I felt like, you know, the critical reception was quite a bit harsher and it was as if she sort of showed up on the scene and like the only thing music critics had to say about it was sort of skepticism or scorn it felt like she was like a punchline for a while i felt like before i even had fully encountered her music i had like heard jokes i can't think of any other artist whose career was launched off of such this hand-wringing obsession about what's real and what's fake and who she is as a person and who she is as a persona and then has basically written album after album, song after song about these questions that other people had until we get to, you know, her recent artwork where she's asking those questions of herself, where it almost seems that like she has identity crises over and over again about who she is and who she wants to be. It's kind of crazy that we're still talking about this 
you know, nine albums later, but we're mm-hmm. still talking about it because Lana is still talking about it. Like oh, yeah. in an interview, this press cycle, she like cited specific pieces of criticism about her from that era. So, mm-hmm. you know, it really, to your point, has been the uh, framework for her entire career. I really liked Lana Del Rey as soon as I heard Born to Die. When I finally did listen to it, it hit for me immediately and I have mm. never looked back and... I certainly won't defend everything she's ever done, including naming an album Chemtrails over the country club. <laughs> <laughs> so look at so after Born to Die, she puts out Ultra Violence 2014. I think I think of Born to Die and Ultra Violence like the first verse, Honeymoon and Lust for Life, sort of like the pre-chorus. We're really getting to the good part, like now. Let's bring her on stage, ladies and gentlemen, Norman fucking Rockwell. That was the 2019 album that critically acclaimed, really, I think we gave it a 9.4. Cause you're just a man, it's just what you do. I don't know what changed. Gosh, I mean, sonically, she's kind of left behind the sort of like trap beats of Lust for Life and is really like kind of leaning into this more singer songwriter, like acoustic orientation. Norman fucking Rockwell is when she started working with Jack Antonoff, which I think Mm -hmm. has been really productive for her. It's also, I think, when she, for whatever reason, started putting a little bit more autobiography into her music and it started to feel a little more personal and there's still a lot of moments where I think I'm pretty sure you're making that up but the feeling of truthfulness that I always felt in her pop songs started to become more of like a actual narrative of truthfulness as well let's skip ahead to to this album she puts out the title track which is called did you know that there's a tunnel under ocean boulevard open me tell me Fuck me to death, love me until I love myself. There's a tunnel under Ocean Boulevard. Yeah, I think it's interesting because this song in particular does engage with the idea of the public perception of Lana Del Rey, but that isn't necessarily like immediately obvious in the text. The imagery that we're dealing with here, the tunnel under Ocean Boulevard, if we want to start there, that's like that references the Jurgens Tunnel in Long Beach, which is this pedestrian passageway that, you know, runs under Ocean Boulevard to the beach. It's been closed to the public since 1967, but remains largely intact. And she has kind of posited this tunnel as a metaphor for like the idea of people's opinions and perceptions of her work kind of like calcifying around her in such a way that the real Lana is no longer accessible. Mm. This like idea kind of sets up the record in the sense that we see her examining sort of like both sides of this equation, which is like the real Lana, which is the really like hyper-personal confessional pieces of this record that are about her family and her trauma and her grief. And also the perceived Lana, which is kind of the parts of the record where we see her, you know, self-mythologizing and a little bit deliberately inflammatory, perhaps. 
So, you know, this was produced by Jack Antonoff and Lana's ex-boyfriend, cameraman Mike Hermosa, um, who also appears as a producer and writer. All of the producers and guests and engineers on the album John Batiste, uh, Riopi, Father John Misty. Um, and then this also features uh, um, Judas Smith, who is a pastor for the Hollywood elite. Pastor to the stars. Pastor to the stars. There's a lot happening on this record. This record, I love how she starts giving you little things that she's going to come back to. And like the first one is how she opens the album with the sound of the backing vocalists practicing. One, two, ready. I'm gonna take mine with you with me. Ah, mine. <laughs> Say it again. Mine of you with me. Thank you. One more time. And then you hear mm-hmm. them, you know, sing those harmonies for real later in the song, or she in the lyric says, my pastor told me. And then a few tracks later, you're gonna hear her pastor like give a sermon, actually tell her. You get to love, you ever talk to somebody? I want a new life. I don't love my wife anymore. I don't love my kids anymore. Missing out on life, they're usually my age. Those little moments that kind of, like life recurs in those ways too. You have familiar things that come up in your life that make these songs feel so like lived in and real. And then as we get deeper into the album through the interludes and into the more intensely personal singer-songwriter songs like Kintsugi and Fingertips, we start to kind of go somewhere a little bit stranger. And it feels like you're just sort of driving off the path all the way out until we get to Peppers and we start like goofing around and like pretending that we're the Red Hot Chili Peppers, like playing surf rock. What are some other sort of motifs that you noticed on this record thematically? Like, where are you hearing things on this record that sort of repeat and recur? So there are definitely a couple of thematic through lines that I think are really helpful in orienting. One of them being family, one of them being kind of like related, the idea of child rearing. There's a lot about death. There's a lot about like the idea of legacy um, and kind of just like questions about the future some of the other like pieces that that weave it all together are as you were as we were saying these kinds of echoes there's like another moment the lyric let the light in which is mm-hmm. itself kind of the through line in kintsugi it's also a reference to leonard cohen and then there's kind of like an echo of it in the song let the light in featuring father john misty Those echoes and reverberations are also kind of internal in terms of Lana's discography and then Mm. external in terms of like all of the many, many references that she is making to other artists. Well, let's go there right now because we already mentioned Leonard Cohen and one of his most famous songs is his song Anthem, which is where that... Uh, line comes from which this lyric has been embroidered on every household item that you can find Um, but there is a crack in everything that's how the light gets in there is a crack a crack in everything that's how the light gets in that's how the light gets in 
And that obviously is could be taken from the Japanese art of kintsugi, which is when you break a plate or something, you glue it back together. It sort of speaks to the idea that when you repair something, there is beauty in the repair. And there's something almost more beautiful about putting something back together again, even though it is imperfect, which obviously I think <laughs> speaks to a lot of Lana Del Rey's themes throughout the year. But, but not only like Leonard Cohen gets referenced here, John Denver, Rocky Mountain High. I mean, in the first song, she starts singing about Rocky Mountain High, which also is very sadly where her uncle died in 2016. And she sings a lot about her uncle. Like, I would say, like, the songs about her uncle are some of my favorite songs on this album. There's something that makes me feel almost like I'm dreaming when I hear it, which is in Fingertips. This is mm. a, one of the songs that talks about her uncle a lot. It's really a sad and emotional song about living through a lot of deaths in your family. And then the second mm -hmm. half of the song, she kind of turns it into a kind of grieving the mother she never had. But if you notice as you're listening, when you get to the line where she would say, she says, like, what kind of mother is she? The word mother is like faded out. It's like blanked out. And there's sort of like a little oh, sparkling yeah. noise instead. And I was like, whoa, like you wouldn't call her your mother. You'll write it down, but you won't sing it and put it in the song. Caroline, what kind of mother is she to say I'd end up that part gave me chills. <laughs> like, I feel this, and I will write it down in a lyric sheet, but I simply just can't let my mother hear this, that I'm actually this upset about how I was treated as a child. Oof, that was like, that was very, that still gives me chills. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. fun for you guys? Is this fun to sort of think about this album as this huge intertext communication with music from the past and present? I'm like willing to make a reference connection that's a little bit of a stretch because I think ultimately that it's all pulling from the same place. And if it's not conscious, mm -hmm. then it can be unconscious. That is part of why Lana's music feels so tied into like pop cultural understanding and why it always feels like it's reference. She's so postmodern. She's so postmodern. I love mm -hmm. it when she's mashing up this Tommy Genesis song with Wipeout while riffing on the Red Hot Chili Peppers and like talking about catching COVID. Every every part of that, like the like five tastes that you never thought you would taste together, and like how many singer songwriters can write convincingly about catching COVID. That's like a dumb text from your friend and she just makes it sound like profound somehow. I think some people 
would argue that there is sort of a fake profundity to some of her stuff um, that sort of because of the mood she sets and because of the Instagram ability uh, of it all, that there is this sort of internet profundity and not sort of a deep cosmic sublime profundity to it. I would disagree because I think she's so she's such a study of music history and like she cares so deeply about the details of her songs and like the details of it. Like even on this record, some of them are a little bit just like wallpaper. She's saying like Ella Fitzgerald in the air on Fishtail, which is really just kind of like scene setting. I think that these references really open up this sometimes hermetic songwriting on this record and they're not at all hidden like they kind of invite you to participate and like to bring in your own associations and like to familiarize yourself if you're not familiar Mm. and in terms of like this being accessible or relatable the sort of like hyper referentiality of the record I think is like really appealing to music lovers because she's really showing us how much the music is just like kind of part of the fabric of her life and like how she makes sense of the world. Like, I I don't know. I think it's so funny on the grants that like her point of reference for like the idea of like accessing this kind of spiritual plane is a John Denver song. Like, Mm. even though Mm -hmm. the song is like kind of somber in a way, it's like very funny to me. I'm gonna take my of with me Like Rocky Mountain High The way John Denver sings She talks about, I think it's, she's talking about getting together with their family, either at a funeral or some gathering, and everybody knew the song Froggy Went a Courtin', right? And I have these moments in my own life where I'll be at a family gathering and everybody sort of knows some Jimmy Buffett song. And I'll be like, this means something to a lot of people here. And now suddenly it means something to me only because like I am surrounded. I am in this moment with my family, whether fraught or beautiful. And I think like the way she captures that by referencing, you know, Rocky Mountain High by John Denver or fucking Froggy Winnow Corton. It's a really amazing feat of songwriting that she can elevate these seemingly silly moments on page and even like as we're just sort of talking about them i'm like wait what am i saying frog why am i talking about the transcendence of froggy when accordant but she has this way both with the music and her voice and her songwriting to really sort of lift it up Uh, one of my favorite songs on this album is sweet i love the way she just sings the word sweet in the title it feels so just classic i'm sweet That song reminds me of Let Me Love You Like a Woman, kind of her last song about I'm ready to leave L.A., thinking about moving up north. And I love in that song how she sings, like, if I'm not there, come find me at my house. It almost sounds part mm-hmm. of like why it sounds when we talk about it sounding California, like sounding local. That line almost makes it feel like you kind of walked into like a local coffee shop or something and you're kind of hearing someone from your own neighborhood like, oh, like if you don't see me, like come, ar- you know, come around the corner, like come see me. And it feels so personal in a way. And dropping that 
type of song and with all these references to older songs and classic songs makes it feel like, you know, she's doing her set and maybe like putting the jukebox on and kind of putting her going back to her set. In her early careers, she was sort of like, I, I'm not going to tell you I might be a little coy. It doesn't matter. You shouldn't look to like, I can do whatever I want to do. And it almost seems like with this album, she's being very honest about what she thinks and who she is. She has that line in Grandfather, Please Stand on the Shoulders of My Father While He's Deep Sea Fishing, where she says, Regrettably, I'm also a white woman, but I have good intentions, even if I'm one of the last ones. Which I think is in reference to her uh, infamous... Question for the culture. Question for the culture. She's just asking questions. This was the regrettable Instagram post from May 2020. A volatile time for all of us (laughs) when Lana had some thoughts about other pop singers and people felt that it was quite in poor taste. I think we can all say that that was sort of the final straw for a lot of people. And I think Lana is so consumed with this intertextual life of her own world, her own references, the fact that she's writing lyrics about referencing some uh, note that she posted on Instagram in 2020 and possibly responding to that, you know, her her own interiority, her own vision of America, that it seems like it's more difficult to apply like her lyrics to your own life. And I think oftentimes like I am repelled by art that seems to be so intertextual and you really have to sort of read an annotated volume of everything you need to know before you get into this and before you can take everything away with it. So it can be difficult to find uh, your way into these songs if you're not familiar with the lore of Lana Del Rey. Part of what to you as the lore has always felt very familiar to me. You know, the elements of the character that Lana Del Rey like represents in her music is something that comes from a lot of hero origin stories, which is the desire to leave where you're from and reinvent yourself as someone else. It reflects an experience, I think, of a lot of other young women where you, you know, at a much too young age kind of encounter a world that is going to fetishize your purity, but is going to value your sexuality and how much long-term damage that does. And Mm. I think you hear Lana Del Rey like still unpacking that stuff, you know, in her lyrics now as as a full grown adult. Olivia, what do you think? So your question is kind of getting to the the idea of like relatability and like accessibility, which I, I kind of wonder if that's even a goal for Lana to be reaching like a wide and casual audience. Mm-hmm. And like maybe it's a little bit of an intellectual or like archival exercise mm-hmm. to like listen to Lana Del Rey. But like I think who she's appealing to is not a casual audience it's like people who have been with her for some time. And there are those things that are rewarding to that audience, like decoding all of those internal references, not purely like hearing a lyric and feeling like it's relatable to their own circumstance. I love to see her reapproach some of these same themes from a more mature perspective. And I think a, mm. a really conventional pop star would have just done a reinvention, come out with a new image, you know, just said, I'm somebody new now. And... Lana Del Rey is just, she's always Lana Del Rey. She is so consistent. I hear this in like the song A&W when she says, you know, ask me why I'm like this. Maybe I'm just kind of like this. 
And that, mm-hmm. that, that that just stubbornness, just being so committed to just like being yourself, even when it sometimes, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work, sometimes it causes people to yell at you on the internet, but she is so locked in. I'm a princess, I'm divisive, ask me why, why I like this, maybe I'm just kind of like this, I don't know, maybe I'm just like this. My kind of theory of A&W is that she's representing two different archetypes of, like, women in America and that the first one is, like, the titular American whore and, like, you know, she's talking about feeling castigated for the ways in which she's, like, expressed sexuality and, like, expanding it to something beyond herself by identifying it with this archetype in all her different iterations. Like, there's, you know, the kind of, like, imperfect quote-unquote victim and and like the side piece and then this like dramatic switch up happens and she's suddenly a child which is like to me another way that women are just like collectively imagined Mm. under patriarchy it's just like so arresting and like somehow so much both about lana herself and like a broader narrative about women in america this song is incredible big song it's a big song what is your absolute favorite lyric on this album? What is the one thing that you are writing on a piece of paper and sticking it above your desk because you just want to look at it and read it all of the time? Well, I won't be sticking a post-it note that says, fuck me to death above my desk at work, but but if I could, maybe. <laughs> well, other than other than um, F me to D, what, what other what other what other lyrics tumble around in your head? Will the baby be all right? Will I have one of mine? Can I handle it? Even if I do, it's said that my mind is not fit, or so they say, to carry a child, which um, I don't know, is just so getting so deep into the heart of it. And Mm -hmm. this anxiety about death, but like this is anxiety about the future and about like her ability to carry on a family line gosh, contending with her own anxieties and also other people's anxieties about her at the same time. Um, Mm. I find that lyric just like incredibly striking. Another small Mm -hmm. one I had is in Kintsugi towards the end where she says she's riffing on this idea of, you know, repairing pottery. And often in Kintsugi, the pottery is repaired with a gold glue, grout. The crack in the pottery is gold when it's finished. Mm. And she says, then you're golden. And she kind of waits to the very end of the song to, like, give us that little joke. I love that. Well, that seems like a positive, uplifting note to end on Lana Del Rey. Anna, Olivia, thank you so much for hanging out. It's been a pleasure talking to you about Miss Del Rey. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast. You can find Anna Gatza at Twee as Fuck and Olivia Horn at Olivia and Horn. You can also read all of their writing at pitchfork.com. Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch is our senior producer. James Trout at Rococo Punch is our technical producer. Ryan Domble is our showrunner. Jessica Grunulia is our music supervisor. I'm Jeremy Larson. Thanks for listening.